Welcome to the PA Books Podcast. PA Books is a production of PCN, the Pennsylvania Cable Network. This program features interviews with authors of books on Pennsylvania people, history, sports, business, nature, and politics. We hope you enjoy this podcast. This week on PA Books, Thomas Leach and Linda Kaplan, authors of Bridges, Pittsburgh at the Point, A Journey Through History. Our guests are Thomas Leach and Linda Kaplan. They are the authors of this book, Bridges, Pittsburgh at the Point, A Journey Through History. Tom Leach, we'll start with you. Uh, why did you want to be an engineer uh, building bridges in the first place? Well, I'll tell you my first experience with bridges. I was six years old. We were on our annual trip uh, from Pittsburgh to um, <coughs> Fort Necessity. We crossed the Elizabeth Bridge, and I looked at the superstructure for the bridge way above the roadway surface, and I asked my parents, why did they build the bridge up there when we drive down here? I was met with silence, <laughs> and that question uh, perplexed me. Through grade school, high school, I went to college to study to be a civil engineer to learn how bridges worked. You always wanted to be. That's always wanted to do that, yes. Linda? Um, slightly different experience, but again, started fairly young. Uh, in my fifth grade class, we did a science unit on bridges where we built toothpick bridges that, you know, had to hold us. And uh, we also built a 25-foot-long suspension bridge using donated food, so cans of tomato sauce for the towers, boxes of spaghetti for the roadway. And I just found the process fascinating. You know, we'd spend lunchtime in there just tweaking things and trying to level it out. And that really stuck through with me as I moved into college. And, you know, I wanted something that was very practical that, you know, I could see what I'd done. It's one of the great things about being a bridge engineer. You drive around, you can see your structures. You can really tell that, you know, what you're doing is making a difference. So it was, again, an early on decision for me. How many toothpicks did it, you um, had to be able to stand on this toothpick bridge? Well, it had to hold the equivalent weight. We didn't actually stand on them, but the spans were about a foot long, and uh, the whole thing was budgeted out. You had to budget every toothpick that you bought, every ounce of glue that you bought, you know, from the school store, and uh, build these out over a couple of weeks, and then they load tested them in the classroom. Mine's still on my desk at work. It never failed. So you knew it was bridges and not engineering in general. Um, there was a period of time where I thought about other engineering, and then I ended up back at Bridges. So, what never really straight far. What do you have to know to be a bridge engineer? Well, uh, you have to be good with math, good with science, like numbers. Um, you need to like drawings, like to make drawings, read drawings. And you have to have a real curiosity for how do things work. Um, how do bridges work? What we outlined in our book is all the different bridges that have been in Pittsburgh, how they work. So it's something that uh, curiosity drives the engineer, uh, pride of what you do when it's done, to be able to say that I worked on that, uh, that structure. Uh, so pride and curiosity, they're, they're the drivers, but you need to know a little math. I think I want to just also emphasize the creativity aspect of it, because it's something I really enjoy. So, you know, these things, especially now with our modern codes, which have been developed over the years, 
the math is pretty straightforward. You can read through it if you're, you know, of a strong background. You can sort of learn the math of it. But to really excel and to really enjoy it, I think the creativity is part of it. To understand what kind of structure is going to fit in any given location, and that's very well demonstrated through the historic bridges that have been in Pittsburgh that are discussed in the book as well. well how does creativity come into it? Well, not every structure type is going to work in every location. So you look at a particular river crossing that you want and you say, what's going to work naturally with the environment? What kind of lines are in the area? What, how much clearance do I need and what kind of structure is going to allow me to have that? And that's where some of these more inventive and newer bridge types have come through over the years. Engineers looking at the problem and saying, you know, we've always built this kind of bridge, you know. We've always used this type of material. Well, that's not going to work. That gets damaged too easily. That doesn't give us enough room. That isn't going to fit. What can we come up with that's new or different? Well, as the bridge engineers, how do you look at a bridge? I mean, if you go to a bridge you've never seen before, how do you look at it? Well, the first thing I look at is the overall structural form. Um, every bridge has a backbone. Like a human being has a backbone that supports its weight, the bridge has a backbone. Uh, many times we look at it and we're intrigued to say, well, how did they conceive that particular shape? Uh, there are repeated shapes that are used uh, based on engineering mechanics principles. Uh, some of it is done quite imaginatively, creatively. Others is uh, perhaps unimaginative, not very attractive. So you look at it, you, you rate it in terms of from your own perspective, uh, how it fits in with the setting, technology at the time it was constructed, and uh, in some of the brick cases, the bridge is very beautiful. Many of the bridges we have in Pittsburgh are beautiful. There are many beautiful bridges that were in Pittsburgh and are long gone, long in a forgotten history that are quite ele elegant structures and very, very imaginative and very, very beautiful. So there's a, a number of things that, that we see in bridges that's, that's just a few. Do you have a favorite bridge that isn't here anymore? Yes, I do. The Sixth Street Bridge uh, was designed by John Roebling in 1857. It was the second bridge at the Sixth Street site. It was a suspension bridge, very graceful. It had three towers, three pairs of towers that were uh, made of wrought iron, and they were just like something like out of a fairyland. And it was a very imaginative bridge, and it was a beautiful bridge. Uh, there's a photo of it in our book. Uh, there are very few photos of, of the bridge left. It was a great bridge for the time. It supported the weight of coal cars, coal bushels, uh, cows, people. In 1890s, the electric trolley came to Pittsburgh, and the bridge couldn't take the weight. So unfortunately, one of the most beautiful bridges in all of Pittsburgh uh, only lived a very short life, a 33-year life. Uh, and when newer technologies came, uh, it replaced the bridge. One thing that our, our book really demonstrates, I, I think quite well, is that there have been a number of bridges in, in Pittsburgh over many years. Uh, but why did the bridges disappear? Well, when a new form of transportation came, all of a sudden the bridge wasn't robust enough to support the weight and bridges were replaced in, in large scale. So there were several ways. First was the wooden bridges. Uh, they just supported, if you think about Pittsburgh in the early 1800s, cows, bushels of coal, moving back and forth across the river, people. Uh, then when newer technology came, iron bridges came. When the railroads came, a new class of bridges came. When the electric trolley came, a new 
uh, new transportation mode, a new class of bridges came. And all those different periods came through. The bridges were not strong enough and, and were replaced. When the automobile finally came and the heavy railroad bridge came, they then had the technology to use steel bridges, and that's, that's the bridges we see today. But there have been, within one mile of the point in Pittsburgh, 34 different bridges at one time or another. There's only 13 today. So our book tells the story of all 34 of those bridges, back from the very beginning in the most infancy of, of times uh, to, to right up to the, the present, where we now have very sophisticated computer modeling that we can use to analyze and design bridges. Linda, you have a favorite former bridge? Um, my favorite bridges are actually still standing. So my favorites are the 6th, 7th, and 9th Street bridges, the, the Three Sisters. And that's for a couple of reasons. One, and they're beautiful bridges, and the fact that they're such pretty bridges is of great interest because originally they weren't going to be. They were going to be just very standard truss bridges. And the recently formed Pittsburgh's Art Commission at that time said no. I mean, everybody just assumed the Art Commission would approve whatever had come through, and they said no. They said, start over, come up with something better. Um, we want something that's going to be iconic. We want something that's going to define Pittsburgh. And that's what those bridges really are. I mean, you look at you know, shots on the news, whenever Pittsburgh's in the news, or when our sporting events are aired, those are the bridges that are shown. The other thing that, from an engineering point of view, that's really fascinating about those bridges is that they're very unusual structure type. Um, they're self-anchored suspension bridges. So your typical suspension bridge has really big, typically concrete anchorages that the cables tie into to hold them down. Well, our riverbanks didn't have the room, the space for those kinds of large anchorages. Um, so they couldn't do that. So they used a different form, again, the technology developing with the environment of this self-anchored system that ties back into the deck uh, to build those structures. And there's very few of them in the country, and we have three here in Pittsburgh. Well, and each of you are called on to build a bridge. I mean, have you been the, the lead engineer or the architect? How, how do you, who's the top person building a bridge? Well, the, the top person is the one that eventually puts his professional engineer seal on. He has what's called responsible charge. Uh, I've been in a responsible charge of many bridges for many years. Uh, but it takes many years of mentoring to grow into a position to be in a responsible charge, probably 10 to 15 years uh, working your, your way up, so to speak. So I have been in a responsible charge of many bridges, many in this area right, right here that in the Pittsburgh area that, that you, you may know and have seen, the um, Bloomfield Bridge, which is just uh, a little few miles upstream from the studios. Uh, most recently, the Halton Bridge. Linda was a staff engineer, worked, worked with us on that bridge, and uh, Linda did uh, refined mathematical analyses for that bridge. I was responsible charge for the Joe Montana bridges for the Pennsylvania Turnpikes uh, bridges and many other bridges uh, in, in the area. Uh, it takes a lot of mentoring. You need to have a lot of good people that you work with as a young engineer to, to learn the skills of the trade and, and so on. And uh, eventually, you're, you're in charge of bridge projects. Yeah. I'm obviously earlier in my career. So I've been working uh, for the past several years in more of the staff and design position and have recently transitioned to a more project management position to get ready for that position of responsible charge. Well, at, at risk of being ageist, I, I assume computers were always part of the equation when you they were, were yes. building bridges. Not old? for me. No, sir. I was educated with a slide rule. <laughs> And it was a big thing to have a little hand calculator that you could multiply and divide and add and subtract. And 
So I've been of the education, of slide rule education to modern computer. I did a lot of computer programming in, in graduate school, so I've, I've seen quite an, an evolution of uh, improvements and uh, drafting as well. Uh, it was the drawings were elegant drawings made in the old days, many with ink. Ink pens, very slow process. Today we have computer-aided drafting that much speeds up the process. Are there computer programs that where you can just plug in the parameters and it gives you a bridge now? There are some things that are developing towards that, but you have to use them obviously with a lot of caution. Um, you know, there are very high-end, what we call finite element analysis programs where you can put in all of your geometry and loading and it will give you a lot of the stress and strain analysis, so the, the sort of basics of member sizing. But the, the detailing of it still comes down to the engineering and the engineering background. You don't want to just put in a bunch of numbers and assume that the program is right. You really have to understand the, the details behind it. You mentioned the Pittsburgh Art Commission in yes. the 19-teens, something like yes. that. Well, is there something like that now, or how important are aesthetics in putting a bridge together now? Uh, it's still very important. Um, there, I believe the Art Commission does still exist, and it's obviously evolved with the times. But any time that a bridge goes up, things are budgeted a little bit differently now, obviously. Um, back for many of these historic bridges, uh, there'd be private companies putting them up or a bond to get the funding. Now all this is done through federal or state government. So they really tend to have a lot of the say in what the look is going to be. But there are uh, public interest meetings that are held for a lot of bridges. Um, for bigger structures, Tom mentioned the Halton Bridge earlier, there are uh, very extensive design review processes, different alternatives that are presented. So. It's still a very important part. It's more integrated with some of the uh, current budgeting systems and federal design or federal uh, processes, but it's definitely an important part, particularly with more big signature structures. So if you look at you know, major river crossings, those are going to have a lot more of an aesthetic component than maybe a highway overpass replacement. So is there a line in the budget that says the things to make it look pretty, like lighting or paint? Sometimes, or? if you're lucky. If we hope for them. If there's public participation, that's the most important thing. If the public is really interested in a project. For instance, on the Halton Bridge in Pittsburgh, the public was very interested in the bridge. Uh, whenever the agency, in this case it's the state, sees that the public is interested, they will listen to the public and they will appropriate certain percentage of the budget to, to have aesthetic enhancements to the project. Who decides what color the bridges are? Uh, in the case of the Halton Bridge, the community voted on it. <laughs> they had a, a number of choices and they, they chose the color. Is that usual? Uh, no. No. <laughs> no. Uh, typically the um, state or the city or the county will keep within a limited number of colors that are basically standard colors. Um, but it's not unusual now for uh, public participation. You see many different colored bridges in many communities around the, the area and throughout the state. And when you see a variation in colors, you can be pretty certain that the community had some input to that and it was something that meant something to the community. And bridge color is something that's very iconic in the Pittsburgh area. You know, our downtown bridges are all the uh, bright yellow color, the Aztec gold, and you know, the golden triangle of downtown Pittsburgh. So. 
Other times you look at bridges and think, ugh. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> well, and, and not just in Pittsburgh, but are there bridges you think, what is it that you think is unattractive about a bridge? Uh, things that are clunky, things that don't show the structural form. So as an engineer, I think that the most beautiful bridges are the ones where you can really see how it works, where it sort of seems natural for how that is holding, being held up or transferring the load or fitting in that space. Things that are very clunky, uh, just big solid blocks of concrete that just are there and just seem over-reinforced or like they're trying to hide something. I find that very unattractive. Any in the Pittsburgh area that you'd like to be in charge of replacing? <laughs> oh, I don't know about that. Um, <laughs> nothing that immediately comes to mind. Nothing immediately comes to my mind. I will say, say this as far as aesthetics go. One important thing is uh, you look at the ratios. You look at how light strikes the structure. You look at how it will look at from different perspectives. If you can optimize those qualities, you will have a very, very nice structure. Well, we haven't really talked about your book yet. Um, this Bridges, Pittsburgh at the Point. Uh, first of all, just to, to not scare people off, how technical is it? Oh, not it's not very. technical at all. This is, this is written to pass what I call the wife test. My <laughs> wife's read it and she loves it, and uh, she's certainly not an engineer. So uh, we have written it for the lay person. What we've done is, and any person that comes to Pittsburgh uh, and visits for the first time, we always tell them to go up to the top of Mount Washington, look down on the point. So uh, many folks have come to the city, look down at the point, and we ask people to go to the point, but not from the view of Mount Washington, but to go to the point where the fountain is and imagine yourself back in time. Imagine yourself back 250 years ago when there were no buildings, uh, there was no railroad, there was no bridges, uh, tall trees lined the riverbanks, the only sign of life was a little smoke from Native American village close by on the north side. Put yourself back where George Washington and his, his group of uh, explorers was when they were trying to, to meet the French. And then imagine what would take place in the city over so many years in time. Imagine what would come across the waters. Now, when you think of the water, uh, at that time in our history, a water was a big obstacle. It's not an obstacle today, we just get on our, our car and drive across it, but water was, was a big obstacle. So we asked people to come back, imagine that they were living 250 years, what would you think would happen over the next 250 years to, to bring us to the present? What we've done with the book then is trace that history of the city uh, from 250 years, but we've traced the history of the city through the eyes of the bridges. We've looked at the city and its development uh, through the bridges recognizing that the bridges uh, represent the technology at the time. Uh, it represents new families of bridges, represent new changes in technology. And with that, we can see the, the city grow. What we've done in the book uh, to help bring that point home is have some nice maps illustrated uh, in all 12 chapters that show the development of the city from before bridges to where we are today. And you can see, you can see the development. The development uh, took place simply there were, first there were fords. When people crossed in fords. Uh, where were fords? Usually where the river was a little wider and a little shallower. Uh, we think back in time that when George Washington and his group was at the point, the river was 18 feet lower than it is today. Why is that? Well, we have uh, 
locks and dams all up and down the river. Our rivers are more canals than they are rivers <laughs> now. Uh, but it was a quite different setting. The rivers were much lower. Uh, people came across in fords. The first fords were at Smithfield Street on the Monongahela River and 6th Street on the um, Allegheny River. When you forded, did you just go through the water? and through it with through your wagons and your horses. Just yes, you just push your way through. Then enterprising individuals um, <clears throat> had little barges and would take people across. And those routes became established. And so our first bridges uh, were the Smithfield Street Bridge and the 6th Street Bridge. So they took what was the fords <laughs> to the little barges that took you across the river uh, to, to bridges. And that's how the city got started, and that's, that's how the bridges got started. Is this the first book you two of you have worked on together? Yes. How did you divide up the duties? Tom was really the historian. Uh, I did a lot more of the sort of personal interest and biography pieces talking about some of the famous engineers that had been involved. Uh, and then we really split up some of the, the little bit of technical content that's in there. We do have some very simplistic diagrams showing how the structures work. Again, coming back to why these particular types of structures made sense, uh, how they had developed with the technology, how they fit with the land, fit with uh, the times. Are there times going through this book or, or studying bridge building in the past that you come across something an engineer came up with and think, wow, you know, how did they figure that out back then with those tools? Or the opposite, where you think, oh boy, what a, what a mistake. Yeah, certainly. I think um, anytime the material changed, I think those are really some of the big six. So when they went from wood to iron and from iron to steel, those are really big changes. And to be that first engineer that said, you know, We've done all these wood structures and they keep burning down in fires. It's, we have to replace them every however many years. It's really a problem. I'm going to try this. I'm going to try this new material. I'm going to try building a bridge out of iron and see how that works. And that's a really big risk to take, and, and that's impressive to me. Well, I would say, we think back to the very first bridges that were wooden bridges. Uh, this was a time whenever uh, there weren't really engineers that built bridges, people that built barns. Uh, extrapolated and said, well, I think I, I can go build a bridge. And what's interesting is they used barn technology and uh, made wooden bridges out of trusses, which are trusses, a triangulated network, um, uh, materials that form a series of triangles. And they had real no criteria to judge a bridge except one, if they saw it deflect when uh, the cows went across the bridge, they thought, oh, this is bad. <laughs> You mean change shape? Yes. And yeah. when they actually see it move up and down, they thought, this is bad. That was their only, oh, their only criteria. So what they did was then they sandwiched the trusses by lines of parallel arches on either side, and they stiffened it. What they didn't realize was they were changing the whole backbone structure of the bridge, that when they did that, they didn't really stiffen it. They made it a new type of bridge. It was an arch bridge that carried all the load. The backbone switched very quickly once they sandwiched it to the, uh, to the arches. They never really understood how it worked. They had no feel for it except it didn't deform anymore, so it must be good. Uh, that was the thinking in the 1800s. And the first bridges in Pittsburgh was 1818. Uh, the series of wooden bridges, half a dozen bridges, were all built only with some sort of feel. If we do this, maybe it's a little better. Uh, what they 
did do was made the members very generous, so they, they lasted a reasonably long period. But it really wasn't until modern high-speed computing that one could analyze this very sophisticated system and find out exactly how it worked. So people had feel, a rough feel for how it worked, but it they really wasn't engineering. It was just um, tradesmen, craftsmen work. And so it's very interesting. We, we hope to illustrate uh, that very clearly in the book. But to think from 1818 to now 2016, 200 years, how far we've come. We've come from an era in a relatively short time span when people had some notion of how things work, but not real clear thinking, uh, only looking at something very broad as an objective. Uh, now the codes that Linda's talked about, that we have to design a bridge, maybe two or three inches thick of eight and a half by 11 pieces of paper, many, many criteria. We've gone from one single criteria that we don't want to see it move to many, 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 many serviceable criteria. What it's enabled is structures to last a much longer time, be much more reliable, and uh, be much better for society. Why do covered bridges have covers? Uh, simply, um, it's like the paint on a steel bridge. It's to simply make it last longer so that the wood uh, is not affected by winter, winter and rain. As, uh, as bridge building has evolved over time, have styles come and gone? Where there's some particular style that's in for a while and then, no, nobody builds bridges like that anymore, and it just for, for artistic purposes? Somewhat, yes. Um, I mean, clearly you don't see wooden covered bridges anymore. It's, I think, partially an aesthetic thing and partially a technology thing. That, that's really sort of been the driving fo force behind bridge building. And now, if you look at more modern bridges, um, the things that are really pushing the limit are these long span bridges. And for those, cables are really the, uh, the driving trend, uh, these big cable stay bridges that you may have seen. Uh, we don't have any currently in Pittsburgh, but uh, the new Tappan Zee Bridge that they're building in New York will be a cable stay structure. Internationally, there's a lot of cable work going on. Um, also, the use of precast elements uh, with concrete that, you know, they can sort of develop more complex forms and then bring them in. That's been a, a real trend that has developed and has allowed for some new shapes and, and new aesthetics, uh, as well as uh, what they call post-tensioning, where, again, you've uh, cast these concrete forms and then to tie them together to put a cable through them and pull them. This has been sort of one of the newer technologies that has driven new forms and new aesthetics within the bridges. If a new bridge is built now, how long should it be expected to last? Design life is typically hoped for about 100 years. That's what we design for, typically. What wears out? Oh, it depends. Well, uh, any part that moves is uh, the most vulnerable part. So uh, many of the bearings, that's what the superstructure sits on, uh, moves in response to temperature. Um, those are set up and designed to be replaced at, at a, maybe a 30, 40-year interval. The bridge deck that uh, has salt put on it, and certainly our northern climates uh, will wear out, that's, that's replaced. And the expansion joints at the end get clogged and uh, or suffer corrosion. So those are the elements that's considered uh, to be replaceable. What we've learned, and what we've learned through experience, um, is what are those vulnerable elements? Um, how do we treat them? in the best way possible in design, how do we extend their life, and then how do we plan for them to be uh, replaced over time. 
Because the Brooklyn Bridge is more than 100 years old and still going strong, apparently. Right. Is there a trick to that? Well, it was a, a very unique design. Uh, it was a Roebling design. Uh, and I have to think it's very well maintained. Uh, they look very carefully at the cabling system and make sure um, that there's not active corrosion. Roebling learned uh, quite a bit about cabling and was quite, um, quite a stickler for the way the wires should be protected so that they, they last a, a long time. And um, I'd say it was good design, good construction, and very obviously very good maintenance. What should people know about John Roebling? Roebling, yeah. Why don't you say something? Roebling's a, an interesting person. So obviously most well-known for the Brooklyn Bridge, but really got his start in the United States here in Pittsburgh. So he was highly educated, went to engineering school in Berlin, uh, and then emigrated to the U.S. from Prussia, actually with the intent of becoming a farmer. It was more important for him to, to get to the United States than it was to take advantage of his engineering degree. So he intended to become a farmer, and he did. Uh, he set up Saxonburg, about 30 miles north, and he did great, but he was bored. So he, when the advertisement came out for a new design for the Allegheny Aqueduct for the canals, Pennsylvania Canal that came through Pittsburgh, uh, which had been a wooden structure hurt by fire, again, a common problem, uh, Roebling put in a design and actually won that due to his low bid and came up with a design for a suspended system. And this is where he really developed his cabling systems. And that was what was his true innovation. Um, he developed the, the method of twisting the cables, using the suspended cables, did it with the uh, aqueduct here in Pittsburgh, did it with a number of structures uh, in the Johnstown area where he did a lot of work, replacing the hemp ropes, the inclines with cables so that they wouldn't break as frequently, and then ultimately up to the Brooklyn Bridge. So he was really the innovator behind that. Did he invent the suspension bridge? I would say, I he, would say. He, he learned, he was educated, well educated in, in Prussia, and he learned uh, a variety of engineering mechanics um, support systems. He learned the principles of it through his European training. He was the first really to apply it uh, in, in the United States. Yeah. And what he did was, uh, before, right before he, he designed the um, uh, replacement structure, he had worked for a short time for the canal company. And he worked with the Portage Railroad in the central part of the state uh, that uh, brings the canal boats up over the Allegheny Front, and the hemp ropes were breaking. So he thought, well, I've got some wire cabling that I use around my farm that perhaps I can do something and help. And he did some experimentation at his farm and then convinced the canal operators that this wire would be a much better substitute than the hemp rope, and it was quite successful. In that time, he acquired about three or four separate patents for different uh, wire rope um, connections and uh, uh, twisting the wires, annealing the wires, placing the wires together. And he brought all that knowledge to him when he then did go work on the, the Pennsylvania Canal. It springboarded his career. Uh, once the Pennsylvania Canal Bridge was successful, and many thought, this can't possibly work. You put a little water in this thing, and the water's going right in the Allegheny River, but it worked quite successfully. Right after, that was the year, it was 1845. 
Um, that was also the year that Pittsburgh had one transformative event. It was the Great Fire of 1845. Uh, the Great Fire of 1845 um, was uh, started at noon. By 9 o'clock at night, it had reduced to ashes one-third of the city of Pittsburgh. And in the process, it moved from the point down to where the present 10th Street Bridge is, about a mile in length along Monongahela River. And it burned down the first Smithfield Street Bridge. And the city quickly turned to Roebling that had success and said, give us a bridge here. So what he did was he used the same uh, foundations that uh, uh, the, the wooden bridge, the covered bridge, was built on. And he built uh, a small suspension bridge. And that was his first highway bridge. Um, the specifications for the bridges was three lines long. The bridge had to support its own weight. It had to support 800 head of cattle. And it had to support so many uh, bushels of coal being transported across the bridge. And uh, with that in mind, he used what he had learned from his education and proportioned a rather interesting suspension bridge. Uh, it was very flexible. It, it deflected as much as two feet in the middle whenever all these cows or <laughs> bushels of coal came across the bridge. And uh, it wasn't all that serviceable, but uh, it was a start. It was seen as a milestone in American engineering. And it's from that that springboarded his career. From then he went to build the Cincinnati uh, Bridge, the bridge across Niagara Falls, many other bridges ultimately to the Brooklyn Bridge. Uh, any Roebling bridges besides the Brooklyn Bridge still standing? Uh, there is uh, an aqueduct over the um, Delaware River that was uh, for a canal, and it was very similar uh, to, um, to the Allegheny Aqueduct that was in Pittsburgh. That still stands, and uh, that's been uh, rehabilitated, repurposed. Certainly, it's no longer a canal. It's uh, for pedestrian use. It's in a park now. So the aqueduct you talked about, they would have to have the canal coming up to the river and then put the canal on a bridge going over the river? Right. Yes. Wouldn't, isn't that a lot of weight? Oh, it is. Yes. It is. Um, let's tell me, tell me a little bit about the, one of the most interesting things about Pittsburgh and its, its history is, is the canal. The canal is just almost like a postscript. But uh, consider this with the, with the canal. In, uh, right after George Washington left the service of the British Army, and was a private citizen. In 1774, before he, the, our revolution, he and others in the state of Virginia envisioned a canal across the mountains. And its destination point was here in, in Pittsburgh. Well, why was that? Well, the Ohio River, where it forms at the point, was at that time passable, navigable. The Nongahela River, as I said, was 18 feet lower. Uh, the Nongahela River was little waterfalls, little pools of water. It wasn't navigable at all. Uh, the Allegheny River wasn't navigable as well, but this, this was a destination. After the Revolutionary War, uh, he and Jefferson looked for a canal. He actually studied routes uh, through the Allegheny River to, to, to Pittsburgh. After, uh, and after the Revolution, before he was president, he was even president of a canal company, believe it or not. And so this canal was something that we had visualized for years and years, society had. In 50 years of visualization, it finally came to fruition in uh, 1828. Uh, but it only lasted 25 years because the railroads came. But what it did to the city is 
is unmistakable. The routes that were the canal was eventually taken over by the railroad, so that's where all the railroad lines now followed the canal bed. When the canal came to Pittsburgh, it came uh, from Johnstown, down the side the Kiski River, Kiski Minnetus River, crossed the Allegheny River, came down on the west side of the Allegheny River because the land was more gentle. Then it came and crossed the river at 11th Street, very close to uh, the convention, Pittsburgh's Convention Center. And it had a lot of water in it, yes, four feet of water, uh, quite, quite, quite a volume of water. It came into Pittsburgh. There was a big turning basin at 11th Street, which is now where the Pennsylvania was, which was the Pennsylvania Station. It then made its way parallel to Grant Street uh, onto the Monongahela River. Now, when the railroads came, the railroads occupied the same spot, and the railroad that went through Pittsburgh is no longer in existence, but when the subway system came, it went through the same, it widened the same tunnels that were used from the Pennsylvania Canal to be our present uh, system. So we can take Pittsburgh's history and transportation, think back to George Washington and others visualizing canals, to the canal coming, the canal going, to now a circulation of much later transportation that was never ever envisioned. So quite, it left quite, quite a mark on the city. Is there something unique about the weather in Pittsburgh or the climate that you have to take into consideration when you're putting a bridge together here? There are unique considerations for any cold weather climate or four season climate. Um, you know, there are much higher issues with uh, degradation based on, you know, the salts from the roads, the freeze-thaw cycle, which uh, puts a lot of extra strain on the materials. Those are key things. Um, but as far as Pittsburgh specifically, it's really more about the natural resources. So you're going to see a lot more steel bridges in Pittsburgh, whereas if you go out west, you're going to see a lot of concrete bridges. So uh, material usage is much more regional as well. But they started off as iron bridges. Yes, well, iron preceded steel. So um, after the wood bridges, then we you know, transitioned to iron in its various forms. And a big part of that, obviously being in Pittsburgh, was you know, we had a lot of the iron mills, the coal seam in Mount Washington. And uh, actually, Andrew Carnegie, who is known in Pittsburgh for a lot of other things, had a real big hand in the bridge industry as well. So he started. Uh, a major bridge company, which uh, was then known as the Keystone Bridge Company, uh, in the area, and you know they would go after you know these bonds to build bridges, and he would ensure that his mills would get the contract. So he would you know he had the bridge company, and then he would ensure that you know the iron work would be from him. And part of why Carnegie went into steel is that as the technology developed, he was working on uh, the Keystone Bridge Company had the contract for the Eads Bridge and the designer wanted to go with steel for a lot of the members and Carnegie was very upset because his, he had the contract for all the iron and this was one of the turning points that told Carnegie you know we really have to go to steel that is the way of the future and so his mark on the bridge industry and how that played with the transition from iron to steel is very interesting and a, a part of his history that's maybe less well known. Uh, and the Keystone Bridge Company actually then later on merged with a couple of others to become American Bridge, which is still one of the largest bridge companies in the country, uh, headquartered in Cordiapolis. That's where you get the name Ambridge, the town? Yes. Yep. Well, why is steel better than iron? Well. Um, Iron has its drawbacks. 
whenever iron was first made, now I understand this, iron is the fourth most abundant mineral in, in the earth, so it's, it's very, very abundant. But when they first made iron, they could not uh, reduce impurities, so it's a very brittle material. They, uh, that's cast iron. Uh, they made compression members that weren't um, so much subject to uh, fatigue problems uh, with cast iron. But then they quickly came to wrought iron. This city had a lot of what they called puddling furnaces, uh, where they made wrought iron. By wrought iron, they would take the cast iron, and they would, like with a big ladle, stir this and stir this, and as they'd work the iron, they would work the impurities out, uh, reduce the carbon content, and uh, make it very suitable for tension members and for many, many bridges. But the uh, puddling process was very difficult. Uh, the labor was very intense, and it was expensive. And with steel, um, then there was a much improved product that could even be one step better than wrought iron that then ultimately became much cheaper and economical to produce, and it could gain much higher strengths and certainly became the material of choice. You write in your book that the age of iron came to an abrupt end for bridges in 1879 uh, on the Tay Bridge of Scotland near Dundee. Right. Yeah. Uh, the largest, one of the largest bridges in the world at that time was the, the Tay Bridge. It was built by the uh, the, the British and the Scotch. It was to connect basically England to Scotland. And it was a bridge that the superstructure was made of wrought iron. Its columns were made of cast iron. And the cast iron had impurities in it. Um, there was a lot of flaws in the materials. It had some very poor detailing. And it was very young. It was only it built, built a couple of years. But there was high winds. A train was on it. And the uh, words of a person on the bank was he could see the red lights, he could see the red lights, it was raining, and all of a sudden everything disappeared. And they, they realized that the entire bridge had collapsed. So they had a board of trade at that time that looked into the investigation, a detailed forensic evaluation. And they concluded that uh, the failures was initiated in the cast iron members due to material flaws, poor design details, and uh, the unreliability of cast iron and ultimately wrought iron was, was realized at, at that time. So there was a transition period, but by 1890, virtually all bridges were made of steel from 1880 to 1890 in a 10-year period. Uh, at that same time, in 1880, uh, Pittsburgh set up its first engineering society. It was called the Engineers Society of Western Pennsylvania, which it's still called today. And they set up with a mission to educate uh, all engineers. It was the, the second oldest engineering society in the country. One of the very first articles they published was on the Tay Bridge disaster because the Tay Bridge disaster, as the author of the paper said, causes man to pause and think, think. Uh, it was through, unfortunately, the sad experience of the 1800s that many improvements were made in the 1900s and that the uh, Bridges now have a much, much longer life, much better detailed, uh, much better manufactured. Uh, but as a society, we have to learn, and we learn from our failures. And uh, that was one of the most significant failures, and that essentially brought the age of iron for use in bridge construction to an end. Are there bridge disasters in Pittsburgh's history? Uh, the most recent bridge disaster, I want to call it a construction, 
problem. In the 1904 construction of the Wabash Bridge, that is no longer here, uh, the Wabash Bridge was a large railroad bridge that crosses at Stanwick Street, only 500, 600 feet from the point. The only thing that's left of the bridge today is its uh, stone columns that project <coughs> above the water. At the time it was built, it was the largest uh, cantilever bridge in the United States. Cantilever means its construction. It starts at either shore and progressively builds out to the middle. Uh, during construction, uh, one of the cranes collapsed and it brought down a segment of the bridge. That's considered Pittsburgh's worst construction history. In western Pennsylvania, probably the most dramatic um, collapse was the Kinswell Viaduct collapsed. Uh, that collapsed in a, a tornado. And uh, I was able to conduct the investigation for that and find, find why that collapse occurred. And that was the second generation bridge at the site. They reused um, the connection from the foundations from the old bridge to the new bridge. They made an assumption that the winds would only come from the west, because that's where prevailing winds come, and the connection on the east wasn't made like the connection on the west, and then the cyclonic motion of a tornado, the wind attacked from the east and collapsed the structure. It was a built-in flaw from day one. So you were in charge of the investigation? I was the principal investigator for the collapse. So when you, when you showed up on site and there was this mangled bridge, how do you start? How do you figure out from that tangle <laughs> of steel what, like, go backwards and figure out well, one of the things that I insisted that they do was uh, fly this thing aer aerially um, and look down on the structure. And that was probably, I and mean, we did a lot of things, we did a lot of metal testing, but that was probably the most significant things because we were able to go back uh, to the office and look and see what piece of steel laid on top of what other piece of steel. And we were actually able to recreate the entire collapse sequence. And it failed in, in a about four different means, and that's all outlined in our report. But it's very, very complex. But the easiest thing is, to, the best thing is to do is to visualize the, the system as a whole from above and compare that to your notes. When you're studying bridge engineering, do, do you study bridge failures and figure out why they failed? Um, there are some classes, like on fatigue and fracture, that you can study uh, sort of the basic mechanisms. So what are the things you'd be looking for? But the education is not going to be as bridge specific. A lot of that is really about mentorship and on the job training and the experience that you gain working on projects. Um, the structural engineering education is going to be a little bit more broad for people going either towards transportation structures or large buildings or residential or commercial or any number of directions. So the education is going to be on material properties and crack propagation, you know, how cracks grow, how cracks spread, things like that. Whereas the knowledge of looking at a bridge system is going to come from experience. I, I, I like to add on to what she said. I, I teach at Carnegie Mellon University. I teach engineering mechanics and what's called geotechnical engineering, which is foundation design. Uh, as a practitioner, having witnessed a number of failures in both the foundation side and the superstructure side, I integrate that into my class. As a designer, you want to design against failure. There's no better way to understand design than to see something in a collapsed state. That's certainly something that uh, rings a bell, and I think it helps uh, a student visualize what the whole bridge business is about. Linda, you also work on tunnels? 
I have done some work on tunnels, uh, the Squirrel Hill Tunnel here in Pittsburgh. Uh, I was involved in the rehab for that uh, with the ceiling removal and the structural design involved. Are tunnels really expensive to put in in the first place? Yes. It's like on the turnpike. There are lots of roads that go around mountains and not many to go through. Uh, tunnels are expensive to put in. They're also uh, expensive to rehab and hard to uh, alter in the future to some extent. So if you want to do a, a widening project, you can widen the road up to a point, but if you're going through a tunnel, now you've got a, a little bit of a bottleneck. So that's one of the reasons that they're somewhat avoided. How do they do these tunnels, like in Europe, that are 30 miles long for ventilation so, so people don't suffocate when they're in them? Uh, there are very robust ventilation systems in all tunnels. Even the tunnels we have here are modest in length, a mile or so in length. Uh, pretty complex ventilation systems. Uh, one of the reasons they avoid tunnels is because there is quite an expense to uh, design, run, maintain uh, a, a ventilation system. Uh, there is forced air, usually through very large fans, that uh, moves. Uh, the air moves with the traffic, and uh, uh, it's expensive. I've been in the European tunnels. They're very well done. They have, uh, uh, we look to the Europeans for, for new ideas in, in tunnel maintenance and uh, uh, escaping people in the event there's a fire hazard. Uh, does Pittsburgh have as many bridges as it's ever had now, or, or does it have fewer bridges? I'd say it has as many bridges as it's ever had. As we add little bits and pieces to our interstate system, we add a whole bunch more bridges. Does, so, it, have, does it have enough bridges? Uh, well, for a bridge designer, it never has <laughs> enough bridges. <laughs> when, when you put a bridge together, you have to figure out where traffic goes, right? I yes. mean, it doesn't just go across and end at the other end. How do you work all that in and figure out how wide to make the bridge? And well, that's one of the things that's very interesting about the development of the bridges. Tom mentioned earlier that you know where these fords were, where people would you know cross the river through the water. That became the natural path. That's where the bridges came through. And so, the locations of the bridges have very much followed or driven, depending on which order, the business development of the city. Um, when they sort of went to you know more of a, a master plan. And, and looked at where goods and services needed to meet and how to get around the city to avoid traffic. That's where a lot of the more interstate bridge designs and, and layout came through, or like the Liberty Tunnel when they needed a connection to the South Hills. Uh, we discuss in the book when they are setting the positioning for that. The original alignment was several uh, feet higher, it was 40 or 80 feet higher than the current positioning of the bridge. Um, and then they sort of stepped back and looked at it and said, well, how are we really going to get there? So they repositioned based on where the traffic really needed to be, where the, the commerce was. Are there suspension, or I'm sorry, uh, drawbridges in Pittsburgh anywhere? No. No drawbridges in no Pittsburgh. Draw They're usually in very low, low altitude along lakes and along oceans. Uh, have you encountered flooding as a problem? Is that ever a problem for bridges, oh. or are the bridges high up My enough? My goodness, flooding has, been, big has been a big problem in the city. Some of the more transformative events in the city, uh, two, uh, two flood incidents with the 1907 flood, they called it the million dollar flood. Not, the, not only did it affect, disrupt large scale uh, businesses in downtown, it actually rendered one of the point bridges, it was called the Union Bridge, it lost its support and they closed the bridge immediately. 
So the city was without a bridge, a connection from the point to the north side for many years because of a single flood. Uh, the next big flood was the um, St. Patrick's Day flood in 1938. And then people thought we need to get really serious. Unfortunately, right after both of those events, world wars intervened. <laughs> and it pushed, pushed public's work construction back be, because of the war effort. But the floods are, are a significant. The earlier bridges, the wooden structures that did not have very robust, um, robust piers, uh, were affected by spring runoffs. They called them freshets. They had their own little Pittsburgh ease word. It was called a freshet, which somebody took from Milton, Paradise Regained. And in the spring, before flood controls, uh, the water 18 feet lower, all of a sudden it's 30, 40 feet higher, and a very high velocity. And many of the bridges uh, lost a span, lost parts of the piers. Um, so flooding has been a recurrent problem until modern flood control. I have, have been problems with bridges have been knocked out by having ships hit them? Uh, not in not Pittsburgh. Pittsburgh. Not in Pittsburgh. Not in Pittsburgh. Oh. I learned from your book, you say, it may be surprising to know that flood stage is measured against an arbitrary datum that does not necessarily correspond to the bottom of the river channel or any other specific point for that matter. So flood stage is 46 feet from what? It's meant to be approximately where the river was when George Washington was here. But no one knows exactly because they couldn't find where George Washington was and the river was. So I've talked to people from the Corps and they say um, it's arbitrary. As far as they can stick their rod in at certain points, then they'll declare that to be elevation zero. And that's not only Pittsburgh, that's, that's everywhere. Uh, when we say flood stage, it's not measured against a specific datum, just an arbitrary datum. Before we run out of time, I have to read this that you wrote in your book under the chapter on Pittsburgh's Renaissance and the Interstate Era. Frank Lloyd Wright was asked by the Pittsburgh Sun-Telegraph what he would do to improve the city in 1935, and he said it's cheaper to abandon it. <laughs> uh, a little, little off the cuff. Uh, he later, as you will see in the book, uh, really at the at the request and paid by Edgar Kaufman, designed some his own visions for replacement of the bridges. Yeah. Uh, one of them we showed is a very huge uh, cable suspension bridge, a thousand foot tower. Uh, another was a big circular helix that was, that was un unworkable, but it was near the end of his career and uh, he, was a, he was the ultimate dreamer and had some dreams, some big things for Pittsburgh. Well, for people who are watching this and, and have always taken bridges for granted, how would you recommend when they look at a bridge to, what to think about? I'd say think about, give some thought to how it works. How, when you're looking at this, you know, you, most people drive over bridges and take for granted that it works, that they're not going to fall down, uh, that they can just drive their car over them and not give it a second thought. So give some appreciation to the structural form to how the, the combination of strength and fit and elegance that this bridge is. I would say um, take a look at it, look carefully how the light reflects off the surface. Uh, if a really well proportioned bridge will just capture the light rays, look for reflection in the water. Uh, sometimes the uh, mirror image, double image symmetry of a bridge in the water can be a, a most striking thing. So. For one that's not into the physics, but uh, into the abstract, uh, look at its form, as Linda says. Uh, but see how light reflects. See it, look at its proportions. See how it re its image reflects in the surface of the water, and enjoy it.
Are there bridges in Pittsburgh now that are nearing the end of their life and will need to be replaced soon? Oh, yes, many, many, many bridges. Um, it's probably too, the list is probably too big to, to number. Uh, it's very carefully uh, monitored by all the different agencies, so everything is perfectly safe. They keep very close track of it, and they put in plans to replace bridges on a periodic basis. It's a very long, long-range planning effort, and a lot of work is, is done in that regard. Uh, what will bridges look like 20, 25, 50 years from now? That's what we ask at the end of our book, is to imagine. Imagine what will happen. One of the lessons from history that, that, that you learn is when a new technology comes along, in this case transportation technology, much of the face of our civil infrastructure changes. Whenever the um, trolleys came, all the metal bridges, iron bridges that were in Pittsburgh were no longer any good. They just tore them all down and, and rebuilt them. We try to imagine ourselves what would, and not what the bridge, we asked ourselves the first question, what will the transportation mode be? <laughs> if we can visualize the transportation mode, um, then we can probably give uh, some thought to the, to the bridges. Will they be uh, more slender? Yes. Will they be, be more efficient? Yes. Uh, if the technology is such that um, we can use very light vehicles, they'll be very light looking. If they're if they are like when the trains came and the engines got really big, then we could expect some very muscular structures. So to answer your question, we really need to ask ourselves first, what will our changing transportation be? What will our, what will our modes be? If we could visualize that clearly, we could visualize the bridge of the future. Well, we are out of time. We've been speaking with Thomas Leach and Linda Kaplan. They are the authors of this book, Bridges, Pittsburgh at the Point, A Journey Through History. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you. You've been listening to a podcast of PA Books, a production of PCN, the Pennsylvania Cable Network. Full episodes of PA Books, as well as other PCN programs, are available to stream with the PCN app. Visit PCNTV.com or the App Store for